The gospel uh, is the good news that by faith alone your sins are imputed to Christ, and by grace alone the active obedience of Christ is imputed to you. With those words, we have begun each of our lessons through the book of Galatians, and that will be the case through all ten sermons in this amazing book, written almost 2,000 years ago to a group of Gentile Christians who were meeting in house churches around the Roman province of Galatia, presently known as Turkey. And they were sadly led astray from pure and simple devotion to Christ, as you learned about last week from Lewis preaching to you, and into a false imposter gospel, one that wished to lay on top of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, works righteousness that would somehow complete or enhance the work that Christ had done. And this was remarkably persuasive because they as Gentiles weren't entirely sure that they belonged in the family, and so all it took were for some Jews with charisma and a deeper knowledge of the Bible to persuade them that they needed to add something to the gospel that had saved them. And it was into that environment that Paul writes one of his most blunt, direct, harsh, critical, confrontational letters. And as I told you at the beginning, it's almost difficult for me to uh, channel the tone of Galatians when I preach to you because I don't want to be critical, and I don't want to judge, and I don't want to be bold or offensive in the sense of having to correct and admonish because by God's grace, this is such a sweet fellowship that understands the gospel and I believe by and large preaches it faithfully and understands it truly and sings about it passionately. And so, in a sense, I, I almost feel like I would like to invite you over to watch Paul discipline somebody else. It's like when you're a kid and you know your brother or sister are in really deep trouble and you can't help but want to like go up against the door and just listen in to hear how it went. What, you never did that? I don't think you're the ones who would be the recipients of the rod of correction the way that these Galatians were. But join me and just listen in, because you never know when you're going to be tempted to do the same thing. And I think that Satan only has a few strategies, and if it's worked for him for this long, he's not going to change. And so, you will always be persuaded to embrace the reality that as the old man steps up again and declares to you your inability to live up to your own standards, much less the standards of a holy God, and to try to fill your heart with fear and rob you of your assurance and take your eyes off of Christ, 
You have something ready, a weapon that you can use against that kind of insidious attack against the gospel. Now, just by way of reminder, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, we, we saw a couple weeks ago that all true Christians are equally justified, and that these Galatian Christians were equal to the Jewish Christians, and that they also are children of the covenant. We saw that in chapter 3, 1 to 9, and that they are recipients of the blessings that come by faith and the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. But we also were clear to make the point that good works are a good and necessary consequence, Ephesians 2.10, but they are not an achievement. They are not a merit that is going to complete your justification at some future judgment. You don't need to adopt the teaching that you are saved by grace, but that you are sanctified by works. Your sanctification happened at the time of your justification, when you were set apart from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's own Son. And you were once and for all and forever set aside, and so much so that you are as good as glorified in His eyes because the righteousness of Christ covers you. You see, Paul now wants to illustrate this with a situation they could relate to, and uh, his argument here in this passage, the main argument of the text, the main point that he's trying to get across, is that Jesus Christ is the promised Son who makes sons through faith. Jesus Christ is the promised Son who makes sons through faith, and we'll explain what that means. Paul explains that all Christians are sons of the promise and sons of God. So if you want to follow along the outline today, very simple, sons of promise and sons of God. Now at the very outset, if I can just be personal for a moment, I have to confess that I had to work through a very complicated relationship that I had with the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant, with what I had been taught about regarding the law. I grew up in a Christian home for which I am eternally thankful, but I also grew up in a wider Christian environment and church environment that didn't teach as precisely about the law of God as I wish they had. And so I brought into my Christian life quite a bit of baggage and quite a bit of bad teaching, frankly, regarding the law. And it took me many years to sift through that. And kind of like a difficult childhood, it takes you a while to, to overcome some of those issues. I had a little bit of a difficult Christian upbringing in terms of all the different things that I had been taught. And, and maybe you're in the same boat today. Uh, maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe, maybe whenever you hear about the law, you're confused. You're not sure how it applies to you or if it applies to you. You wonder why you don't hear very many preachers preach from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Or, or when you do, the sermons, they all, they all tend to be moralistic lessons, almost like Aesop's fables. And you go away being told like how to be like Daniel or how to be like Joseph. And uh, it doesn't really have any connection to the, the arc of redemptive history. Maybe you grew up in a church or in an environment where the only time anyone ever preached about the, the Old Testament 
was to try to give you a history lesson, and you thought to yourself, I probably could have gotten the same lesson or maybe a slightly better one at the synagogue down the street. I could have gone there yesterday and had Sunday free. How does this fit into the gospel? How does this fit in to the context and fulfillment in Christ and then ultimately seeing through a lens of the new covenant reality and the fulfillment of everything in Christ what all of those Old Testament and Old Covenant prophecies pointed to? Maybe you're like me and you wondered, why is it that so often people are given a New Testament, maybe with Psalms and Proverbs, but never the whole Bible? Does that mean two-thirds of my Bible is not really that important and all I really need to read is the last chunk? Well, with all of that as kind of an admission of the struggle some of us have, let's dive into this because I believe today will be a day, if you're listening carefully to God's Word, that will, if not correct, at least open up for you the many areas that you should consider regarding the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the whole arc of redemptive history. Let us begin in chapter 3, verse 15 through 21. I want you to see this morning that you are, as a Christian, sons of promise. As is our custom, we will simply walk through this text verse by verse, and I'll explain it as we go. Paul continues to these beloved Galatians, To give a human example, brothers, and may I stop there for a moment, notice the change in tone. He begins chapter 3 by saying, oh foolish Galatians. He's softening up a little bit. He's already given them a bit of a disciplinary touch for the first 14 verses. Now he's going to back off a little bit. He's going to say, my brothers, my brothers, (laughs) Christians, I I was there. I was with you. I I know you embraced the gospel. He's softening it from just the foolishness of what they had gotten into. And remember, not not in anger necessarily, but as as a parent perplexed at what the child has gotten into. Now he says to them, brothers, let me try to give you an example. He says, even with a man made covenant, Forget the divine covenants. Let's just talk about even a man made covenant. No one can annul it. No one can set it aside. It's the same word that is used in Hebrews 10.28 that says anyone who set aside the law of Moses died on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He says that even in a human covenant, once you've made it, you can't just walk away and pretend it doesn't exist. It's going to be enforced. But not only that, he said no one can add to it. No one can renegotiate it. No one can do a change order without both parties agreeing because it's been ratified. That's the theme of the Old Covenant is the ratified covenants of God, the covenants that He has made with individuals, the covenants made with nations, the blessings and the cursings that were attached to that. They would have known this. They, were, grew, they grew up listening to this, whether they were in a Gentile context or a Jewish context. He says, you know it can't be changed. And then he's going to give an example. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. By way of anchoring your understanding of this, would you please look back at the book of Romans? Now, we studied this not too long ago. I'd like you to go 
Actually, you know what? Start in Genesis. We're going to keep going back. Don't worry. We won't go like verse by verse all the way back into Galatians. But go back to Genesis. You know, it's been said that Genesis 11, 27 to chapter 12, verse 9 is the very center of scriptural understanding of God's relationship to His covenant people. And, and just so that you hear it, let me read Genesis chapter 11. Verses 27 to 32 are a bit of a history of Abraham, where he came from, his father Terah, and the migration the family had. And then here in chapter 12, listen, beginning in verse 1, Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, and as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai and his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, the place of Shechem, the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then Yahweh appeared to Abram, and he said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on till going toward the Negev. This little snapshot, this, this little cutaway scene in the life of Abram is exactly what Paul is reaching back to in order to reinforce for these Gentile believers their participation in that very blessing we just read about. You see, they are proof that God was faithful to His promise to Abram, who later became Abraham. And so he said not only to Abraham, but notice it back in Galatians, and to his offspring, literally to his seed, now, we have to stop for a moment because this is singular. Please notice it. It's seed. And what he's saying is that the blessing came to Abraham, but it came to Abraham and a particular descendant that came after him generation by generation. And it wasn't always the descendant you would think of. In those days, it was usually the firstborn oldest son that everything passed through. That's how you did your genealogy. That's how a promise would be passed along. That's how family wealth was preserved intergenerationally and titles were conferred. But notice, it wasn't like that for Abraham. As a matter of fact, this seed, this offspring, which would eventually go all the way to Christ, followed a very different path. It was through Isaac and not through Ishmael. It was through Jacob and not Esau. It was through Judah and not Reuben. In fact, and you see this in the 
Gospel of Matthew, right at the very beginning, it's just so fascinating to trace through the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew is very deliberately structuring that and organizing that to show you that the line of Messiah came through a very particular set of descendants, some of whom included the children of former prostitute Gentiles of other Gentiles from other countries that worshipped other gods, people like Rahab and Ruth, even people like Bathsheba, mothers who were maybe not set aside as the uh, example of Jewish righteousness, and yet because of God's sovereign plan and love, He chose that this Christ, Messiah, would come through this line with these people for this reason. And to be clear, he goes on to say, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, seeds. It wasn't just a random nation from which the world would be blessed. It was a particular line leading to a particular person. Therefore, it doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but strongest contrast possible, referring to one. And brothers and sisters, here's where it all makes sense. Here's what it's all pointing to. Here is the last page in the story. Here is where the promise becomes fulfillment. Here is where all the dots get connected. He says that it wasn't through many, but it was through one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's what it was all pointing to. The entire Abrahamic covenant was a promise that through a line would come a Redeemer who would rescue a people for His glory, and that that people would not be limited just to the ethnic descendants of Abraham and the Jews, but to all nations who would be blessed when they put their faith in that Messiah. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian today, you are a recipient of that blessing, because as I look out at this audience, I think I can safely assume that the vast majority of you are not ethnic Jews. The book of Galatians is for you, and this lesson is for you. And lest there be some confusion in your mind as to why this law even exists then, or why it had to come to be, Paul wants to carefully guide us through it. He's a good teacher. Verse 17, this is what I mean. Don't you wish all preachers would have a point in the sermon where they say, this is what I mean. They usually say it by something like this. If you don't remember anything else in the sermon today, remember this. <laughs> to which I often think, well, then why did you fill up the rest of the time with everything else that evidently wasn't, like, worth remembering? Let, let's just give me a few of those. Well, Paul's doing that here. He says, this is what I mean, lest there be any confusion. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So the Galatians are trying to be persuaded by Jewish Christians, I think some of them were Christians, that they needed to get circumcised and follow dietary laws and obey all the customs and honor the festivals. 
Because after all, God instituted the law. And Paul is saying, look, that law didn't come for 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham. If that law was so important, it would have come first. He says it came afterwards, and therefore it doesn't annul the promise that was based on faith, so as to make the promise void. It doesn't annihilate it. Please now, again, just to put your thoughts here where they need to be, and so you can mark this for future reference. Go to Romans chapter 4. It wasn't too long ago we were in the book of Romans, and I believe I shared with you my strategy, which was to preach through the four books we've gone through in that order. We went from Romans to Hebrews to James to Galatians. And the reason is because I wanted to make it very clear that in both Romans and Hebrews and James and Galatians that you have this very specific teaching on righteousness and justification by faith alone, but you cannot then separate that from the expectation that there will be fruitfulness and good works. As a result of our understanding of the gospel, we don't then immediately run into this realm of antinomianism, as we've talked about several times. We don't cast aside all restraint. We've discussed the, the way the law was structured and the three uses of that law just a couple of weeks ago. Now understand that in the connection of what's being said here regarding Abraham. Before that law was even put in place, look at what it says, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. I just want to read this to you. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I prefer the word justification, so it's clear. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. It means you don't know that you're sinning. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things which did not exist, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he would consider his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised." That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thus, verse 18, for if the inheritance, which we'll discuss in a moment, comes by law and not by faith alone, it no longer comes by promise. What Paul says to the Galatians, what he says to the Romans, 
is that the promises of God come to us through faith, not through adherence to the law, because God gave it to Abraham by a promise, specifically not as the wages of obedience and merit. Now, at this point, brothers and sisters, I do believe that we are entering into one of the most important sections in the letter to the Galatians, especially for some of us who maybe didn't have the best understanding of how the law relates to the Christian. Maybe like me, you grew up in a context where I would often hear that we used to be under law and now we're under grace, and there's been some radical discontinuity between the two. Maybe you were also left confused, and I, and I think that the question being asked here is the question you're asking, and so let's all listen to what the Holy Spirit, through Paul, to the Galatians provides as an answer. Verse 19, why then the law? That's a good question. That's a good, fair, honest question. One of the things I love about our church is that it is filled with people who ask good, fair, honest questions. And I get them from you afterwards in the lobby. I get them from you via email. I get them from you via text. And you send me these good questions because you're thinking it through. And you don't want to have somebody just pull a fast one on you. And that's a wonderful trait to have. Keep it up. Because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. The reason a church needs to be so careful about how they function together is because even though the times might be good at the moment, you don't know what the future holds. And, and your willingness to hold your preachers accountable to God's Word is a massive encouragement to me, and it's a safeguard for this body. But I believe that Paul is anticipating their good question here, and so he asks it for them. Why then the law? What purpose did it serve? Why was it created? And he says this, it was added because of the transgressions until the offspring, singular, the seed who is Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Back up. Let's try that again. Why the law? was added because of transgressions. What are the transgressions? The transgressions were the 430 years between when Abraham was made the promise and when the law was given through Moses. Transgressions, the sinfulness of the people, the general lack of control in terms of one's own adherence to God's will. It was put in place as a hedge, as a protection, as a curb in order to guide people and it says that it was put in there temporarily until the offspring who is Christ should come. Until somebody came who would obey it perfectly and fully. Somebody who came so that you would know how to evaluate the perfection of his life. Because how do you know he lived a perfect life according to the law if the law weren't there for him to obey perfectly? And so it comes in and it gives you the framework for which Christ could enter and fulfill perfectly. And notice that it was put in place, it says, through angels. We get that from Deuteronomy 33:22, the understanding that when Moses received the law, that Yahweh met with him in a company of angels. But something very interesting is added by an intermediary, by, a, by an intercessor, by a mediator. 
Now, this is probably the most confusing part of the passage. So we're going to go slow. Paul says in verse 20 to explain, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Maybe in a moment of self-disclosure here. Um, so we met a couple weeks ago before we, we left to go to Canada. Our staff meets Monday morning. We do a service review, and we met, and I give a little heads up of where I'm headed the next week, and, and we, we had a longer meeting than normal because the staff, we were getting together, and especially Dave and I were working through this because it is such a difficult verse. I, I mean, you can go to seminary, you know, and come out and still not understand what this means. It's not like you can just go there and look at it in the original and break it down and it's super simple. There are so many complex elements, and I'm sure maybe you've read this and you're thinking, I, I can't figure out how to make heads or tails of this. Well, let me see if I can help. An intermediary goes between two parties. You know that. That makes sense. And it implies that there's more than one, meaning a two-party covenant. So you've got somebody who is making the covenant and somebody who is agreeing to the covenant. And in that context, it was usually a, it's called a suzerain vassal treaty. There was a uh, person who was, had authority, kind of the, the person who was more important, and then you had the lesser person you were making the contract with. And in this case, it, it would have been God and Abraham. And, and God, of course, is the one who is making the covenant. He's the one who has all the power. He is the one who has all the authority. And Abraham is agreeing to it. But if you go back in your mind to the whole episode with Abraham, do you remember what happened? God says to him, I want you to go and get a bunch of animals, and I want you to cut them in half and start from large to small and make this pathway, kind of a gory-looking pathway between the two animals, because we're going to walk down that aisle together. Yesterday, we watched a bride and groom walk down the aisle together. It was beautiful. There were flowers. This is a different kind of walk in the aisle together. <laughs> it's all mess, you know? You're walking through entrails. Maybe if we did that in marriages, they would take the covenant more seriously. <laughs> so, okay. So. But as they're about to go into this covenant, Abraham's waving the buzzards off the carcasses. And then God shows up and puts them to sleep. And God walks through. Brothers and sisters, the person who was the superior didn't walk through. He puts Abraham to sleep. And he walks through. And what he is saying as he does that is that I am going to uphold my end of the bargain. And if I don't, may this happen to me. And he's saying, I'm going to walk through this for you, Abraham. And I'm going to uphold your end of the bargain and pay the price because you can't. And so when Paul goes back and talks about the covenant and says there was this intermediary, meaning implying there were two parties, and your mind immediately goes back to that and says, no, 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 there wasn't, John. There was only one because, as he says here, God is one. There was only one. It implies very clearly to us then that there must be more 
than one person in the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian agreement. This is a covenant made, as we saw in Hebrews, an eternal covenant, an agreement before the foundation of the world that those whose names had been written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world would be redeemed because God was going to send His Son. The only way that God can make a covenant with God is if there is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. An inter-Trinitarian agreement to rescue lost humanity. And so, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, that could be obeyed to the point where you earned your justification, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Isn't that interesting? He says if, if law was enough that you could follow it and justify yourself, then there would be no need for faith and there would be no need for grace. But because we know that we cannot follow that law, because we know that the law can only reveal that we are cursed for our failure to obey it, The law follows the promise to reveal the works we fail to do. It humbles us and it keeps us, as Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and champion of the faith. He is the one prefigured in that covenant exercise. He is the one who came as God and man truly God, truly man, the second Adam, so that he could die for Adam's race and so that he could live the life that Adam didn't live. You are sons of the promise. But secondly, you're also sons of God. Look at chapter 3, verses 22 and following. But strongest contrast possible, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin by revealing that that global curse that everyone fell under and imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith and faith alone. What Paul is saying here is that Scripture, and you say, what Scripture? Well, look down at verse 23. It says, the law imprisoned. So Scripture imprisoned, verse 22. The law imprisoned, verse 23. That's how we understand what he's talking about. There was an imprisonment that occurred because of the law. What it means is that it it, it created the boundaries that made it obvious to all of us that we will transgress those boundaries and therefore be guilty. But now, verse 25, faith has come and we are no longer under this guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He says to these Galatian believers, you are no longer under this guardian, this law, this imprisonment. 
You have been rescued from it, freed from it. In fact, Jesus Christ has come to fulfill it, and you are now wearing His righteousness. If you were to listen to our confession regarding baptism, it says exactly that. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to the person who is baptized, a sign of His fellowship with Christ in His death and resurrection, of His being engrafted into Christ, immersed into Christ, of remission of sins, and of that person's giving up of himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Does His fulfillment of the law and that righteousness imputed to me result in me saying, oh good, now I can forget all that law stuff. Now I can live any way I want to. Now I don't have to care a thing about personal holiness. Of course not, it's the opposite. It's saying that because of what he did in fulfilling that law and liberating me from even trying to live up to it, which I never could, I can now, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, live a life that honors Him and pleases Him. But I don't have to fear that when I fail, it's going to knock me down a few notches. He's still going to look only at what clothes me, and that's the righteousness of Christ. So my assurance is linked to what He has done. And this is what differentiates us from others who would say, no, 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 I understand that. I believe it. You were under law, now you're under grace and the Holy Spirit, and you live a righteous life. But if that's all you think, and you don't see how it all fits together in the grand plan of redemptive history, you rob Christ of His glory. Paul doesn't want the Galatian believers to rob Christ of His glory by trying to do something He's already done. Earning merit for yourself by obeying the law or trying to anchor your assurance to that robs Christ of His glory. And so he continues. He says that you are clothed in this righteousness of Christ and therefore, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is not a declaration of liberty to throw off all the conventions of the culture. It doesn't mean every slave goes free and every person can ignore what the government tells them to do and every child can stop obeying their parents. It's not not that kind of freedom. What he's saying is that you are all equal in the sense that you are all invited in to the banquet feast. You are all invited into the presence of God. You don't have to somehow look to someone else to make you worthy to be there. Christ has made you worthy, and He's the only one that matters. You are all able, equally, to have access to your heavenly Father. That is what the verse means. 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise You are literally alongside all of his ethnic heirs in the sense that all who belong to Christ receive the promise. Now he continues in chapter 4 in just the first seven verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But, radical contrast, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, I skipped over that a little bit earlier because I knew we'd hit it here. 
What is he talking about? Well, he says that in their culture, there were people who were under guardians and managers. Uh, These were heirs. These were children of wealthy people who, until sometimes the age of 25, were not given full access to the family inheritance. Uh, They had to be managed, kind of like a kid has maybe a trust fund, and it's managed by somebody else until they're old enough to be trusted with it. In this case, he is saying that that is exactly what's going on here. We, We are heirs, we are children, but we are treated, as it were, as slaves under the guardianship and the management of the law. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to a system that held out the promise of spiritual freedom and intimacy with God, but was almost never enjoyed. That under that law, people more often than not understood themselves to be falling short of it. In fact, they were so often aware of how short they were falling from the glory of God that they didn't really want to be in God's presence by themselves. They wanted an intermediary to go. They sent Moses up the mountain. They're like, you go. They're looking up there, and it's thunder and lightning. And they're saying, I I don't want to go there. Brothers and sisters, how many of you are tempted at times to think that way now? I don't want to go. I don't want to go into his presence. I I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to God. I, 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 I messed up again in the same way. And I'm quite certain that if I were to approach him, his attitude would be something along the lines of, you know what? It's it's just not a good time right now. Because we think God is like us. And somebody does something against us, and maybe they've done it numerous times and they've promised they'll never do it again, and then they do it again and they come, and maybe they're genuinely trying to make things right, and you're saying, you know what, I appreciate that, but right now, how do I put this? I just don't really want to see your face. <laughs> like, we'll get there. We'll, we'll reconcile. That's got to happen, but now it's just not a good time. I'm not quite sure what's going to come out of my mouth where I just start speaking. You know, it, when we approach God that way, we're, we're reaching back into this old covenant structure of fear. We need to remind ourselves that that's why, that's why Christ came. He came to make it possible for us to always enter into the presence of the Lord, blameless, with great joy. And so, what the author is trying to do for the people here is bring them into the reality of what has happened as a consequence of Christ's finished work. And so he says, when the fullness of time had come, I'm in verse 4, God sent forth his Son. Now, to be clear, born of a woman, born under the law. We covered this on Christmas this year. Such an important verse. He was born of a woman. He was was born as a human and a human under the law. Isn't it remarkable that Jesus Christ lived out his perfect, sinless, human life in, note it, cursed flesh. It wasn't pretend flesh. He didn't just sort of glide through life, hovering over the ground with like a halo, like you see him in those medieval paintings. No, he had a regular body, a body subject to all of the pain and fatigue and hunger and sadness that a cursed body rightly brought upon itself because of sin. So he had all the consequences, as it were, of sin, but none of the guilt. 
so that in that cursed body, he could live out perfectly the life that Adam couldn't live out in a non-cursed body. And he came born for woman under the law to do something, a hint of clause, in order that he would redeem and buy back with his earned capital those who were under the law so that, another clause, we might receive adoption as sons, that we might go from slaves to sons. That's the other thing that you could do back then. If you didn't have an heir, you could assign your estate to a slave, and you could make that slave a son. And, and this, this is the point in the letter when the Galatian believers' minds are just probably not even able to comprehend what's being said. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says, and because you are sons, and, and I want you to notice this, folks, he's, he's not being sexist when he writes sons. Don't say, well, there the Bible goes again, writing sons and not sons and daughters. Why not children? No. No, what he's saying is that you are sons, you are all sons, not just males, but you are the firstborn sons. In those days, the firstborn son got everything. That happened even in our country and in our continent not too long ago. I had breakfast with my uncle, brought two of my sons with me, and uh, we were listening to him talk about our family history. And at one point in our family history, two people came together and they had both found each other in the city because they had gotten kicked off the farm. Because in those days, the oldest son got the farm and kicked the other siblings off the farm. And that's how they met each other in the city. And, and, and that's why I'm here. But in those days, the son got everything. And, and what he's saying here is that you're all firstborn sons. He's adopted you, brought you out of the slave market, and he has made you not only someone welcome in his home, but somebody who is a son. And that is why he sends the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we're the ones who cry, Abba, Father. And that Abba Father, it's not just a, a term of endearment. It's not just an identification. It, it's, it's like a term of appeal. It, it's, 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 a, it's a term that says, I, I have a right to come into your presence. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what you've done for me. And therefore, as we cry, Abba Father, he says in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to the guardianship of the law. But just the total opposite. You're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. You are an heir. Your name is written in as a beneficiary in the living trust of the God of the universe who owns everything. And because his riches are infinite, he could have as many heirs as he wants. <laughs> and you share in what Christ has earned and what would be rightfully his. If there's nothing else that we need to do 
today to rekindle our love for Christ and, and what He has done for us. There's really nothing else we can do, but if we want to try to give words to that expression, I was thinking about hymn 350 in our hymnal. It says this, it's the hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And one of my favorite stanzas in this hymn is the fourth where it says, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perish in our sin. I wouldn't want to go. I'm too spiritually stupid to understand what's inside around his table, and I'd rather play outside with my, with my friends and enjoy all the sinful things that I thought was giving me joy, and I know in my own heart and, and my own fallenness I wouldn't have wanted to go, but as the hymn says, he, he didn't just adopt us, but He sweetly drew us in. It was by His irresistible grace that we're at His table. And then He lavishes us with this feast, and He clothes us in the righteousness of His Son, and then He says to us, you're going to receive my estate in equal share to the perfect one who came to buy back your eternal life. God is a good God. In Numbers 27, five sisters came to Moses and said, we have no brother and our father died and we're going to lose our inheritance. And Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, you better give them an inheritance. They're as entitled to it as their brothers are. Well, that's one way he could have done it, but instead he makes us sons. And he says to us, it's all yours. Consider this, in Christ we have the blessings. We saw that in verses 15 and 16. Genesis 12 fulfilled. All the promises made to Abraham fulfilled now, seen in us, the generations of nations that are blessed in him. Number two, in Christ we have the redemption. The law has been totally fulfilled and therefore the second Adam could buy us back with his earned capital. And then, in Christ, we have the inheritance. The promise has been fulfilled. Everything that was entitled to Christ is now being shared with us. Let me ask you this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Christ and His finished work, what alternative are you looking for? Do you really want to be on the hook for trying to earn it yourself? Please, Listen to that invitation and be drawn in sweetly by the invitation of the gospel. And if that's not enough, let me ask you this. What better hope can you possibly find? What better offer have you heard? It's amazing, not only that He would make a way for us, but that He would make it so wonderful and so easy. As we sung earlier, come ye sinner, poor and needy, weak and weary, sick and sore. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. You're not going to get better. Fly to Him now.